Psalm 93. We've been teaching in the Psalms. I have two or three of them prepared tonight, three or four of them. They're short. These are short ones. We'll see how far we get. We'll take it verse by verse. This one is a psalm of our great king, Psalm 93. And we see the nature of our king and the nature of his throne. The nature of the king is seen in verse 1. The nature of his throne on down the rest of verses, uh, two or three verses, and then the other things that will be brought out. It says, The Lord reigneth. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength, wherewith he hath girded himself. The world also established that it cannot be moved. Now we see the nature of our king. He's on his throne because he does reign. You know, we have kings that sit on the throne for a while and then their reign ceases. But Christ is a his kingdom shall never cease. And we find here that he's a glorious king because he's clothed with majesty. And we find that the Lord is clothed with strength. He is a powerful king. He has all power. Uh, in Daniel chapter 4, let me read a couple of verses about his kingdom and his strength. Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, it says, At the end of days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes to heaven, and mine understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High. He recognized God was the Most High. And I praised and honored Him that liveth forever and ever. So God's kingdom is forever and ever, and God is forever and ever. Whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. This is coming from an earthly monarch, earthly king. And he says his kingdom is an everlasting, his uh, dominion is everlasting dominion, his kingdom is from generation to generation. It says, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? God has a right to do as he pleases. He is sovereign. He is glorious. He is powerful. And his kingdom is well established. Turn back to our psalm. The world also established that it cannot be moved. Not only the world, he's established the world, but he's established his throne and his kingdom forever. Remember it was said of Jesus when he was born uh, that he would sit upon the throne of his father David and his kingdom there shall be no end. And Jesus, of course, is going to come again as King of kings and Lord of lords. In Hebrews 12, verse 28, 28, it says, Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. The kingdoms of this world topple. And we, we see changes in power all over this world. But God is one that will never change. And He ruleth in the kingdoms of men. And when He uh, sets, sits upon His throne in the future, as far as the reign and peace and righteousness, then all the world will be under His rule and power. We know it is today in a, in a critical sense. In other words, in other, they are uh, ruled by God. But he's permitting men to have their authority and power. But he limits that authority and power. The Bible says in the book of Daniel, he, he removeth kings and he setteth up kings. And so uh, he permits kings to reign, but his kingdom is, is uh, going to be eternal. And will, he will sit upon his throne. Look at verse 2. Thy throne is established of old. Thou art from everlasting. It's an ancient throne. Back in Psalm 90, verse 2, it says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. We don't know when God began. We don't know when it will end. We know that there is no beginning and no ending. 
And uh, Jesus said, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, or the ending. And so he has always been and he always shall be. When we think of eternity, it uh, baffles our mind to think of, of before the world was created, before the planets and the sun and the moon and the stars, and before there was ever anything in this universe, there was God. And then it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God is powerful. God's eternal. His throne is ancient. Uh, his uh, throne is, is everlasting, and it's established of old. It is as solid as a rock. It is a solid rock. It says in verse 3, The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. Floods and proud waves may beat against God's kingdom, but it remains firm. Floods sometimes speak of men and their uh, pride and their waves. You know, the Bible says the wicked are like the troubled sea. Uh, The heathen nations, Gentile nations, which have... uh, Oppressed, His people throughout the ages are spoken of as floods and waves and storms beating against the things of God. And yet His kingdom remains firm. All the heathen nations have fought against Israel in times past and they're still there. Uh, all the turmoil that they've gone through, they're still here. And uh, they will outlive some of the things that's happened to them lately. And Jesus said that when He comes, they will still be <clears throat> look in the last part of verse. Uh, look in verse four now. The Lord, the Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters. It says, "Yea, than the mighty waves of the sea." So He's more powerful than uh, all of the things that He's created, and the waves of the sea are powerful and mighty at times. Some of you've been on the ocean, and uh, you've seen the waves and uh, roar and. Uh, and the sea raging. I was on an aircraft carrier and the thing would list some 25 degrees and, and the bow would go down the, where the anchors are, right under the flight deck, under the water, dip under the water, and the spray of the ocean would spray up on the flight deck and up on the bridge. And you just thought, you know, the ship was going to be not on top of the ocean and on top of the water, but in the water pretty soon. Scary too. When God sets the elements uh, out of order, when the things begin to to uh, get out of control as far as human power is concerned, then we begin to be, be very concerned. Remember the ship that they said was unsinkable? They started across the Titanic and one iceberg just split it apart. Of course, went down. Most of us know the story of the Titanic. But anyway, the winds, it says, The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, yea, than the mighty waves of the sea. And yet at His command, they will be still. Remember when the winds and the waves were raging and Jesus was on the ship and He said, Peace be still, and there was a great calm. He said to the, to the winds and the waves, Peace be still. He didn't say to the waves and the wind, Peace be still. You know, the Lord has a way of getting at the root of things. There wouldn't have been any waves if it hadn't been for the wind. So he stopped the wind first, and he stopped the results of the wind. See, you and I, we try to deal with the results without dealing with the cause and the root of it. You ever seen a guy say, well, boy, the water's flooding this house. What am I going to do? And he started getting his mop and started mopping. That's the last thing you want to do. The first thing to do is cut off the water somewhere. Stop the flow of the water. 
we talk about in our nation, you know, we talk about these alcoholics and these guys driving drunk and all. What's the, what's the answer? Keep, stop them with the liquor before they drink it, and then they won't be driving drunk. Have you ever seen how uh, human kindly these bartenders and these bar owners are? They say, now, if you get drunk, we'll get someone to drive you home. It's the most foolish thing I ever saw. You see, they're just dealing with the results of it. They're not dealing, dealing with the cause of it. Dealing with the cause of it put them out of business, wouldn't it? That'd put them out of business. But that's what we do in this country. Instead of trying to help a man remedy what's wrong, we let him get in the wrong and then try to be uh, humanitarian enough and uh, draw upon the ilk of human kindness to try to help him in his situation instead of helping, helping him out of that situation to where he won't get in that anymore. You have to deal with the root cause. The Lord did that for us. He says, for by grace are you saved through faith. He saves us by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves is a gift of God. Someone says, well, I thought we had to have good works. Yes. And he says, created unto good works. Saved by grace, created unto good works, which God hath before ordained that, ordained that we should walk in them. See, the result of being saved by grace, the natural flow of it. Let's get things in their right order. Thou shalt, Jesus said, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. He doesn't say, Thou shalt serve the Lord thy God, and then Him only thou shalt worship. Because you have to love Him and be willing to love Him and serve Him before you can serve Him. See, the heart has to be changed. We, we want to do. A preacher says, he doesn't say, I'm just going to start preaching because I think it would be a good thing to do. The Bible says if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. So you desire it first, God lays it on your heart, and then, then you start doing the work. See, God has to put that desire there. Let's get things in their proper order. All right, let's look at this. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, yea, than the mighty waves of the sea. Look at verse 5. Thy testimonies are very sure that His truth, His testimonies, are beyond all question. There's nothing to be questioned in God's Word. I know there are many atheistic minds that question everything God says. And many minds of worldly wisdom question all that God says. But we should accept it because God has said it. And whether we understand it even or not. Some people say, well, I don't understand. This says so and so. And God, you know, I know He doesn't. He said it in another place in a different way. And He contradicted Himself. No, He didn't. We just didn't understand what He was talking about. That's the problem. God doesn't contradict Himself. And God's Word and promises will never fail. Joshua of old says that there has not failed one thing that He promised. And we can say today that not one thing that God has ever promised is ever... It says, Thy testimonies are very sure. Holiness becometh thine house, O Lord, forever. His house, His family is to be pure and holy. We preached on it this morning at, point, at one point in our message where Paul, I mean, Peter said in verse, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, I believe, verse 15 and 16, he says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. As obedient children, not fastening, this is verse 14, I believe, not fastening ourselves after our former lust, but he says, as is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And so we need to realize that God's house and God's family is to be pure and holy. And the only way we can make it that way is for you and I to follow the Lord, follow His Word, put prayer on the list, put the Word of God on the list, put the house of God on the list, put the things of God first. 
Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things that you have need of will be added unto you. You know, I've, I've thought so many times, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing, by the way, if this thought were brought to the reality that I'm about to tell you, there wouldn't be room enough in this church tonight to sit the members of this church. If God's people were really concerned enough to put God completely first, this house would be filled tonight. Every pew would be filled. We'd have to have some chairs out here. We've got enough people in Riodosa that not only are members of the church, and this is in every church, it's not just this one, but in every church. And people that have been invited, and people that say they love the church, and people that have come occasionally, and people say that that's the right thing to do, that if they had a deep conviction to follow through with what they know is right to do, brother, you couldn't hold the people in these pews tonight. And that's just a matter of fact. But I thought it would be a wonderful thing if all would be that determined. One thing about the early church, they were consistent Christians. The Bible says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in prayers and in breaking of bread. They continued, they continued steadfastly. There was consistency about it. Don't you like to see people that are the same all the time instead of every time you see them, they change with the wind and they change, with, they change their political views, they change their, their convictions, they change their practices, they change everything. They're like these, what, chameleons go along with. You never know what color they're going to be. They in the green grass, they're green. If they get in some red flowers, they turn red. People that have a consistency about their life. I love people that I know when I see them. I know they're going to be just the same person that I saw yesterday or Sunday or Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday. I know they're going to be truthful. I know they're going to be upright. I know they're going to be honest. I know they're going to be caring. I know that if I have a problem, they're willing to listen to it or... And I know that they're willing to tell me their problems. You see, those things are consistency. And we need them in our lives. Well, where were we? The last part of this first one. Look in Psalm 94. It says, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth. This is our great judge. He is a judge who avenges his own. O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth. O God, to whom vengeance belongeth. Show thyself. He avenges his own. In Romans 12, verse 19, it says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Well, if we could put that into practice, we'd, we'd quit this business of trying to get even. You know, have you, how many people have you heard say, I'm going to get even with them? Brother, you're doing the wrong thing because you're already losing when you do that. God says, I'll take care of that. It says, it says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. And you know, I've found that when I put that into practice, if I know that God needs to do some correcting on the part of uh, some that have uh, need to have a, a revenge or a vengeance taken upon them or correction, that if I'll stay out of the way, God will take care of it completely. I just have to back off and let God take care of the situation. I've had people in time past in the history of this church that sought to do it in in every way. I've had people that have tried to, to ridicule it and badmouth it and do all kinds of things. And you know, I just sit back and I look and boy, all kinds of bad things happen to them. And you say, well, preacher, that's just uh, supposing that to be that way. Well, it happens so often it's hardly coincidental. 
when you see it happen, when when a guy just deliberately says, I'm going to do that church in, if you turn around and see him done in instead of the church done in, you know that something happened that, that he didn't plan. He didn't figure it that way at least. Well, God had to have a hand in it. And He does have a hand in it. Don't ever think He's out of the affairs of men. He's well involved in the affairs of men. It says, O, o Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth, O God, to whom vengeance belongeth, show thyself. <coughs> Look at verse 2. Lift up thyself, thou judge of the earth. Render a reward to the proud. You know, we become impatient. Look at verse 3. Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? How long shall they utter and speak hard things and all the workers of iniquity boast themselves? You and I become so impatient and we think that God is going to overlook it and He'll never do anything about it. God is in no hurry. He is all the time there is. Remember, Israel was... God told Abraham that Israel would be taken into bondage. And they'd serve a nation for 400 years. And he says, Abraham, the reason they're going to be down there so long is if Abraham had to have an explanation from God. He says it's because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. He says, I'm going to wait 400 years till the iniquity of the Amorites becomes full and it's time to bring judgment and then I'm going to take care of it. Can you imagine Abraham's generation and then Moses and all the ones after him and, and Joshua and all of it and finally God judges that nation and Moses delivered them out of bondage and then uh, Joshua takes up the leadership and leads them into that promised land because of God's timing, not man's. And of God's plan and not man's. Someone might say, 400 years? You know, 400 years is a long time. That's older than this country. Older than this great nation of ours. 400 years. Think of it. And that's how long they were in servitude. But God says, there's only one reason. It's going to remain that way for a while. And He told Abraham before it ever happened. Look in Genesis chapter 15. God was speaking to Abraham. And Abraham had just believed God in verse 6. And He counted it to him for righteousness. And He tells him of the things that's going to happen in the future. In verse 13, He said unto Abraham, Know of a surety, look, that thy seed... God tells Abraham about this that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. Look at that. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. I'm going to be the one that brings vengeance and judgment. And afterwards shall they come out with great substance. And they did. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. God told Abraham, he said, Now, your seed is going to sojourn in that place where they'll be in servitude. And he says, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. That's why they're going to have to undergo this. In the fourth generation they're going to come out. And by the way, that throws a kink in some people's idea of generations, doesn't it? You know, they say Webster defines it 30, 40 years. In that instance, God was talking about 400 years, wasn't he? So, you know, to take that and use it to pro- for prophecy to, to predict the time of the Lord's return is kind of ridiculous when you don't even know how long a generation is. And uh, there's no definite uh, underline that will tell you exactly how long it is. 
and generation a lot of times means a race of, uh, of people and you look that up and you'll find that that to be true too well there's a lot of things in the Bible we need to study a little more thoroughly before we come to some uh, rash statements about uh, the Lord's return or anything else and to use that generation theory that brings us to another subject in the Gospels and in the New Testament but let's go on with our study here in Psalm 94 notice verse uh, 3 and 4 how long shall the wicked uh, how long shall the wicked triumph how long shall they utter verse 4 says and speak hard things and all the workers of iniquity boast themselves you see often we're so impatient because God does not judge or act sooner and we could very well be if it was a period of 400 years we'd never see it in our lifetime or in the lifetime of our children or grandchildren it'd be the great 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 grandchildren wouldn't it so we find that we would never know if God did bring vengeance in our own lives upon the wicked and ungodly and uh, so for us to see it is one thing for God to do it is another thing it's, it's his business to take care of it and he will we may be dead and gone we may never know anything about it but it's still not off the agenda God's going to take care of it. You see, he's in no hurry is what I'm trying to say. Look at verses 4 through 6, uh, 5 and 6. Right? They break in pieces thy people. Doesn't it hurt you when God's people are broken, O Lord, and afflict thine heritage? When God's people are afflicted, they slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. Sympathy for the, uh, for the oppressed caused the psalmist to pray even more for revenge. Certainly, he wanted God to really do something because of the of what uh, God's people were going through. Now, verse five and six show that the things that happened. They break in pieces thy people. He's talking about the wicked, the workers of iniquity that boast themselves. He's talking about people that mistreat God's people and afflict thine heritage. Verse six: They slay the widow and the stranger, and murder the fatherless, the orphan. They're people that are wicked. You know. We should realize that there are people in the world that care not about the poor or care not about the afflicted, care not about those that are hurting, care not about those that are in pain or in suffering. There are people in the world like that. And you're always going to have them. Self-centered and selfish and greedy and lustful and boastful and proud and mistreat others just for their own comforts and their own gains, which is wrong evil in the sight of God. Let me tell you something else, though. There's always going to be these situations here. And you and I cannot solve every humanitarian problem in the world. In fact, our business is to preach the gospel. And then, in the process, certainly we're to be uh, good to the poor and the needy and help those that we can round about us. But I heard uh, Ricky Skagg say something the other night that has given him some kind of a reward in the Christian uh, for some kind of a Christian group because of his concern for the poor and those on the streets. And he made a statement that I cannot quite go with, though I agree with him that they should be helped. He said if, if the churches were doing what they would, there wouldn't be any poor and there wouldn't be any people on the streets. Well, I doubt that. There's always, Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always. And there's going to be poor people. There's going to be people that... that uh, some are there because they can't help it, and some are there because they could have helped it. You're going to have all kinds. And, and I feel sorry for the ones that are there because they can't help it. 
But the fellow that can do something about it, I don't feel quite as much sympathy for him because I think he ought to try to help his situation. But there's a lot of people of different attitudes about their condition. You know, if the doctor gives you some medicine and says, you take this or you're going to be real sick, this will help you get you well. You say, well, I went to the doctor and here's the medicine. But you know, I don't care about taking that. It's going to taste bad. Well, if you don't take it, it's not going to help you, is it? So sometimes the remedies are there for people and they won't accept them. You know, I like God's Word because it deals with all situations and all avenues, all ideas. Here, the psalmist was oppressed, felt, uh, had sympathy for the oppressed, and he prayed for their uh, revenge. Verse 7 says, Yet they say, The Lord shall not see, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. You see, wicked men do not believe that God sees anything that they do. The unbelief of the enemies of God's people. He has said in his heart, Psalm 10 verse 11 says, He has said in his heart, God hath forgotten. Well, God doesn't forget. He knows. He remembers. And he will remember all those things. He will bring it all to light. And as I said, he's in no hurry to bring judgment. Yet they say, they say, that's the wicked, the Lord shall not see. What about seeing? Does God see it? And it says, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. He will not see it and he will not do anything about it. They picture God as really nothing and helpless and really they don't believe in God. Atheistic minds believe God doesn't see. You ever seen guys say, well, if that's not the truth, let lightning strike me dead. And then he looks up into the heavens trying to dodge it as it comes down. Brother, they really do deep down know that they're in danger when they say that. I don't want to say that. I'm not about to tempt God and say, or try to get God and test Him to see if He's going to do something about the situation. He'll take care of it in His own way and in due time. God sees everything. The Bible says, The eyes of the Lord are upon the ways of man. He seeth all His goings. And He says, There's no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. There's no hiding place from God. He sees it all. He doesn't even go to sleep. He stays awake. He that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Night is just the same as day to him. And he sees in the dark. And he sees not only what's going on on the outside, but he sees what's on the inside of men. He knoweth our thoughts afar off. When you think you're hiding anything from God, you better rethink the situation. You're not hiding anything from God. God sees the hypocrisy in our hearts. He sees the 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 failures in our hearts. He sees the mischief in our hearts. He sees our complete minds. He knows all about us. Remember, Jesus knew what was in their hearts. Jesus perceived what they were questioning when He was would do a certain miracle. When He would heal the man that was taking a palsy. When He said, Thy sins be forgiven me. He knew that they were questioning, Who hath power on earth to forgive sin? And He says, Because you think this, Therefore I say unto the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and walk. The Bible says the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit of the joints and marrow, and listen, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And then it says in verse 13, Hebrews 4 verse 13, says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. You're like an open book to God. 
but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. And then men say that God doesn't see. See, God sees you. He sees you in this pew tonight. Not only physically, but He sees what's in your mind and in your thoughts. And He knows your attitude toward the Word of God. He knows your attitude toward His Son. He knows your attitude toward Himself. He knows your reception or rejection of what's being taught or preached. He knows all about it. See, we don't have to be mind readers. God's a great mind reader. He reads all the minds. He's the one great mind in the universe that knows what's in all the minds of every one of His creatures. You and I are little creatures down here on this earth. It says, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Okay, look at this. Look at verse uh, uh, 8. It says, Understand ye brutish among the people, and ye fools. When will ye be wise? He that planted the ear, shall he not hear? And he that formed the eye, shall he not see? God made them. Why shouldn't he know what they're all about? The foolish are rebuked. The Creator is greater than the things that He has created. Can you imagine not being greater than the thing that's made? Not having power to do it? Hath not the potter power over the clay? The Bible tells us. If you go out here as a workman and you make some, Brother Nichols made some beautiful shells back there. He had the power to, and the mind and the ability and the know-how the ingenuity, the strength, and all to, to bring that, to fake, uh, fix those things uh, so that they would be there. It wasn't in our... God has, God has created everything. And He had to have it in His mind. He had the plans. He had the, the power to perform. And to think that this whole universe, universe just happened to be because of some accident somewhere in time and space is far harder for me to believe than to believe that there was an a intelligent mind and power behind all of this great creation. You don't see the stars bumping into each other. You don't see the, the earth getting too close to the sun that it will burn up just at the proper distance. You see it turning on its axis every 24 hours so that we have day and night. You see the law of gravity in force that keeps us from... We're sitting out here in space on the side of something that's round. Why don't we just fall off and go out into space? Because the flow and the pull of that gravity and God is so ordained that it be that way. The same way with all the things in the universe. And we only have... We look at one through our microscopes and telescopes, I should say, the powerful telescopes, we look at one little galaxy and maybe somewhat beyond and see galaxies beyond... But they say that there are thousands and thousands of galaxies. And we only are, know what's in ours in a very limited way. Very limited way. And you think that all of this could just float around here in space and not have collisions and, and everything fall apart were it not for an intelligent mind and a creator and a power behind it all? I don't understand it. I don't know where God came from. I don't know how long he's been. But I know one thing. When I look and I examine and I find out that, I, that I'm a human being and that I have a, a body that is wonderfully made and that I live in a world uh, and upon this earth and I see all of its blessings and I see how that everything functions and the sun comes up in the morning. Actually, it doesn't. The earth turns around and we see it. But anyway, the sun stays where it is. We call it the sun coming up. 
didn't come up. It stays exactly where it was. But we turned around and we got a view of it. Every 24 hours, every day, we get a view of it. But anyway, God has made all these things to work as they work. It's amazing. It boggles the mind. I saw on that Discovery Channel or one of the channels on TV where it says this program is coming up in the next day or two. It's going to show how that we turned in from a, from a monkey to a man. That'll be interesting, won't it? <coughs> Some men are still monkeys, but I never did see the change between them. <laughs> I never saw them change from one to the other. But on the other hand, think of what God has done, what God has given us. Let, let's go on with this. It says in verse 9, He that planteth the ear, shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? Look at verse 10. He that chasteneth the heathen, chastiseth the heathen, shall not he correct? God is able to correct. It says, He that teacheth man knowledge, shall not he know? If you teach a man something, don't you have to know something that you're going to teach him? Look at that. He that teacheth man knowledge, shall he not know? Well, if God is doing the teaching, he has to know what he's teaching. The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. What are thoughts? Vanity. The psalmist said in another place, Remove far from me, and I've given you this before, Remove far from me vanity and lies. That means vanity and lies is here, and we want God to get them out. Right? And he didn't say, remove me far from vanity and lies as if they're out here and I want to get away from them. See the difference? Man is sinful. And he says, the thoughts of man. The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man that they are vanity. Blessed is the man whom thou chasteneth, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law. You know, God's people will be chastened and they will be corrected and they will be taught by that correction. Look at that verse. It's very important. Blessed, happy is the man. Blessed is the man whom thou chasteneth, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law. Underline chasten, chasteneth and teachest. Because both go together. You correct a child and then you teach a child. And you teach a child by that correction. You say, I'm, I'm doing this for you because I want you to learn that that's not the way I want you to act. Correction is what we all need. The Bible says, Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Just because God corrects us doesn't mean he doesn't love us. In fact, it does mean he does. It means he does love us. We just don't let people run wild and never tell them that that's the wrong thing to do. If somebody's doing wrong, we should say, Look, it's the wrong thing to do. You shouldn't do that way. And give some instruction and correction along the way. Do the things that are right. And then you... and, and uh, be taught by the things that you do when you do wrong and let uh, fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, whoever they may be that has a word of, of wisdom given you for correction and accept that correction and then you will be taught by it. Accept that correction. Sometimes we will not accept it. You know what the Bible says about a man being chastened in Hebrews chapter 12? says, Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If you be without chastenment, then you're not sons, you're bastards, you're illegitimate, you don't belong to God. But he says, Now no chastening for the present, listen carefully, seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. In other words, it's not pleasant to be chastened, is it? 
But it says, but afterward it yieldeth that peaceable fruit of righteousness. Well, it does me some good. But, listen, here's the catch. Unto them which are exercised thereby. If you will listen to it, it will yield that peaceable fruit of righteousness. Unto those that are exercised thereby. And to be exercised thereby means that you accept it as correction and you are taught by it. Have you ever seen some children and, and uh, you could correct them? Mother or dad could give them a spanking and say, Son, daughter, don't do that anymore because it's wrong. And correct them. And maybe use the switch on them. And then the first thing you know, they go do the same thing again. Because just as quick as mother or dad got out of the room, they said, I'm, I'm mad at mom, I'm mad at dad, I'll do as I please. Well, they were not exercised thereby, were they? It didn't help him. It didn't do any good. Now, if God does us the same way, and I don't know, I may be parking here too long. We've got some more verses here. But if God does us the same way, and we act the same way, we can expect some more correction. Because we, we didn't get the lesson. We just didn't listen when He was trying to tell us. And you know, if He has to do it time and again, finally, maybe the message will get through to us that God is saying, don't do that. I want you to do differently. And when you and I receive it from God, we should... Uh, he's the God who corrects and He's the God who teaches. He knows all our thoughts. And then let's go on quickly. We have just a little bit. It says in verse uh, 13, that thou mayest give him rest from the days of adversity. God has a purpose in teaching us, doesn't he? And correcting us. Look at verse 12 and connect it with verse 13. That thou mayest give him rest from the days of, of adversity until the pit be digged for the wicked. In other words, you don't have to worry about the wicked. You just worry about living right and God, accepting God's correction. In verse 14, for the Lord will not cast off his people, neither will he forsake his inheritance. God's not going to throw you away or cast you off. But he does want you to listen. But judgment shall return unto righteousness, and all the upright in heart shall follow it. When you're made to follow the right path, then everything is, is turning out better. Who will rise up for me against the evildoers, or who will stand for me up for me against the workers of iniquity? Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul had almost dwelt in silence. God is our helper, isn't he? The Bible says, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. In verse 18, When I said, My foot slippeth, thy mercy, O Lord, held me up. Have you ever felt like you, you were, everything was just sliding out from under you? That you were on slippery ground? And when you said, My foot slippeth, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. My feet are sliding out from under me. God says He holds you up. It says, Thy mercy, O Lord, held me up. We found that God's mercy was better than our, was greater than our uh, feeling that we were going to fall. And slip. I'm glad of that, aren't you? Because many times I felt like that things were not like they ought to be, that I was standing on slippery ground. You go out here and stand on the ice and start to walk across the ice and your feet start slipping every way, you say, Well, boy, I need some solid ground to stand on. Some gravel or some solid. I don't want to stand on this ice all the time. Well, God says His mercy held you up and He got you over on the solid rock. He got you back where you need, on the rock, to stay. And then it says in verse 19, In the multitude of my thoughts within me, my comforts uh, within me, thy comforts delight my soul. In the midst of all of our thoughts, it's God's comfort that delights our soul. Verse 20, 
Shall the throne of the iniquity have fellowship with thee, which flameth mischief by law? They gather themselves together against the soul of the righteous and condemn the innocent blood. But the Lord is my defense, and my God is the rock of my refuge. He's your defense. He's going to take care of you. And He is the rock of your refuge. Run unto Him and you'll find a hiding place. And He shall bring upon them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. Yea, the Lord our God shall cut them off. So what? Verse 22. The Lord is my defense and my God is the rock of my refuge. He's our defender and our refuge. And the Lord will not let the wicked go unpunished and He will balance the scales in due time. The Bible says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. 